Lifestyle of Prayer. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 6. Father, we thank you again for your word, and we trust you to help us now as we go a little further in this, as we look at the name of Jesus and um, just what it means to use this name in prayer. Thank you for it, Father. Amen. Okay, this is hour number six then on the Lifestyle of Prayer. We're still on lesson four, and we're on page 11. Point C, we just spoke to the fact that by having this name, what Jesus said is, he said that he gave us his name, that whatsoever we did in his name, he would fulfill. And Mark 16, 17, and 18, the Great Commission in, the, in Mark's version says this, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, and they shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. All in this name, he speaks about this. And let me just say one thing real quick that I didn't say the last time. I want you to catch this. When I, if you turn the page back over, when we're in Matthew 28, 18, and 19, where he said again, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go then and make disciples of all the nations. And then this other verse, now I forget where it is right now, where he said, I've given you, behold, I've given you authority over all the power of the devil, and nothing shall by any means harm you. But I want you to catch this. Just let me quote it to you because of time. I don't want to worry about even taking you there. He said, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy of the devil, and nothing shall by any means harm you, right? Hear the difference between authority and power. The Greek word for authority is that word we looked at, exousia, which denotes authority. It means authority. The word power is the word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite from. But what Jesus said is, I've given you authority over all the power. Now, why that becomes important is because none of us will ever be as powerful as Satan, to say the least. He's a spirit force. He's a spirit being. But the best picture to give of this is, again, I think an illustration I already gave you once before, the difference between authority and power. It's like a police officer right out here on Shaftesbury Avenue. If a police officer was to walk out there and put his hand up and say, stop, and those cars, do the cars have more power than the police officer? Well, of course they do. The car has more power but the car will stop, hopefully, <laughs> the car will stop because what that man's wearing represents an authority that speaks to the power that causes the power to bow. In other words, the power will stop because of the recognition of authority. Now listen to that. The power will not do what it could do because of the recognition of the authority of the person who's told it to stop. Did you hear me? Our problem is we do not know the authority that we have. And we have an enemy who will look you in the face and say, who told you? What makes you think you can tell me to stop? And you have to know the Word of God and know that you have been given the name of Jesus and that you have the right 
to operate and to function. In fact, we're commanded to do what we do, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus, doesn't it? You have to understand, see, we have to work at this, like I said again, until we get revelation to this. I'm coming against this sickness, which has dunamis, with this exousia. I'm coming against this power. See, we're not denying the power, but we're declaring the authority and saying that this authority is what's going to cause this power to stop. But because Satan is a renegade spirit, he is an outlaw spirit, he will challenge you to see if you believe in that authority. And so this is why, again, we've got to study this and get it down into our spirit. But now let me get back to this over here. We have the power of attorney. In Luke 10, 19 is where, again, I just, I just quoted this, is where Jesus said, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all of the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. Point D, understanding of this God-given authority is the key to prayer with results. John 16, 24 said, Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. God wants you to bear fruit. Remember when I read that out of John 15? Ask that you might receive. If my words abide in you and you abide in me, you will ask what you will and it will be granted you because my Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. I'm just not able to say that very well tonight for some reason. I can just sense it in the Spirit, but I want you to hear it nevertheless. God wants you to bear fruit more than you do. You have to understand this. And, and again, I say this in every class I teach, but dear God, please catch this. Are you listening? Just give me your ears for one second again. God doesn't use perfect people. Okay? You're never going to be good enough to be qualified. You don't qualify. Just go ahead and accept it. You don't qualify. You have wicked hearts at times. You have stupid brains at times that think stupid things. You have ignorant bodies at times that want stupid stuff. You are in this earth, but you're no longer of this earth by virtue of your faith in this man, Jesus Christ. Remember, that's the whole thing we're studying on Sunday, Saturdays. Your righteousness, your right standing with God doesn't have anything to do with your behavior. With your behavior, it has everything to do with Christ's behavior. And your faith now is in His faith and how He lived that life. Again, so you've got to quote it until it becomes more than a quotation. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the one who loved me. See, I live my life by His life, by Jesus' life. And that's what begins to free me up and that's what begins to produce a boldness in me because listen, all the devil ever does and what he does constantly is to every one of you in this room is tell you about where you fall short. He reminds you every day about what you do not do well and what you could do better but you don't do better. He has this beautiful DVD VCR player in your head and he, the moment you begin to get a little strong, he begins to cause something to happen that brings back pictures of past failures pictures of where you made mistakes and you start seeing yourself, you start seeing yourself in lieu of mistakes and things you've done, things you've said. That's Satan's job and he's on his job, like I said, 24 hours a day. 
This is why you've got to see yourself in Christ and understand that we're doing these things in His name, not in our strength, okay? But authority, it's important. But the joy of the Lord is your strength. He wants you to bear fruit. He wants, I mean, it's hard for people to read. He wants you to have joy. Now, understand this about joy. I'm not teaching on joy. Happiness and joy are two different things. Even in psychology, they teach something like this. I'll paraphrase it. Happiness is a soulish emotion. Joy is a spiritual force. Happiness is a soulish emotion. You can be happy in the morning until the post comes. And the post comes and you can get this letter with red print on it that says you're past due on a bill and you can lose your soulish peace. But joy is something on the inside. And that's why it says in Scripture, you know, if Satan can't steal your joy, he can't steal your goods. You have to understand that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy comes from your spirit. It's not based upon outside, outside circumstances. But because people don't recognize the difference between the two, they let their joy get stolen from them so quickly that it's unbelievable. And that's then why they don't have any strength for Christian service. I always think about this when I teach on joy. I go back to Hebrews where Jesus said this. It says, Jesus, listen to this. Listen to how this is worded. This has helped me all my Christian experience. It says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him. Listen to it now. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of God. Okay? And I remember that all those years ago, the Lord said to me, he said, watch this. He said, Jesus's focus was on, now listen to this. Jesus's focus was on the end result of what his obedience was going to produce. I'm going to say that again. Jesus's focus was on the end result of what his obedience was going to produce. And that produced a joy. Now, that joy was the strength. Now, think about this. Let's talk about, you know, like my daughter-in-law right now and our office manager is on this diet thing, and they're doing a great job, and they're convicting me horribly. But their eye is on the end result of what all of their obedience right now is producing, and that's giving them the strength to endure the cross. What is a cross? A place of suffering. It's also what gives you the ability to deny the shame. Anytime you step out to obey God, you have to understand there's a cross that comes with it. There will be a place of suffering, quote unquote. There'll be a place of denial. And there's always the opportunity for mockery and for people to laugh at you when you step out to believe God. But what I'm trying to spit out here just in a short moment is again this. Even with Jesus, you have to see this. That's how it's worded. For the joy that was set before him. See, the strength of his passion was in that he knew what this was going to produce. He had this knowledge of the Father. The Father showed him all things. And he knew what this was going to produce. And that carried greater weight with him than the actual suffering that went along with the obedience. And I'm just saying, you see, God wants us to have a hold of joy. You've got athletes look beyond all the pain of the training to the hope and the joy of winning the prize and winning the race. Do you know what I mean? And that's what we're to do. But just real quickly, this joy thing. Nehemiah 8.10, of course, it says, Go. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared, for this day is sacred to the Lord. This is after they read the law. Everybody was crying. If you read this in context, it's really quite interesting. Most people have never read the book, <laughs> never read this much of Nehemiah. But he's read the whole book of the law, Ezra and he, 
and everybody's weeping and crying because they're seeing how their sins are all been revealed. We've fallen so short. And he says, guys, listen, don't, don't freak out because this is what the word of the Lord says, but you're here. You're doing okay. God's not, God's not abandoning you. Go, enjoy choice foods, sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. For this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I'm telling you, we quote that real quick, but boy, that's big. That's big stuff right there. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you do not have joy, you do not have much strength. This is why I do not. I refuse. People get mad at me. Some of my closest friends think I'm nuts sometimes because of my humor. And maybe my humor does get in the way sometimes. I'm sure it does. I've messed up. I've made mistakes. But you have to understand, my past is such that I had to learn how to laugh to not go insane. Like I said before, I was saved when I was in prison. And I was in a place, you know, and it's, like I said, where people were being killed every week and just stuff that you see that your, no soul should ever be exposed to. And you, I learned, like I always say, to get as insane as possible so that I could stay sane. You know what I mean? In other words, I played at being insane, but I got crazy. And some of that is still on me, I guess, <laughs> some say. But the point is, I've had to learn to laugh in life uh, because it doesn't do any good to cry through life. And so I like to laugh and not just laugh for the sake of it, but I mean, I've tried to cultivate joy. I like to be around happy people. I don't like to be around sourpusses. You know what I mean? But all I know is the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you see, you're not going to be, I get concerned about all these Christians that all they do is spend their time going, woe is me, woe is us, woe is this nation, woe is our church, woe is everything, woe is everything. And you know, after a while, you just want to say, whoa, <laughs> just stop, man, chill. You know what I mean? Just give it a break, have a laugh. I mean, you know, when all hell breaks loose, I learned this. I heard a prophet, a true prophet of God say this years ago. He said, when all hell breaks loose, throw a party. He said, because something has to happen to snap you out of that spirit of grief thing, that thing that will bind you and just capture you and it'll paralyze you. You won't do anything. You'll get so like this. And you have to break out of that thing and come back and realize the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, your circumstances may, be not, may not be that good. And so your soul may not have a lot to be happy about, but you're born again. You've got eternal life dwelling in you. You're only here for a season. Know you not that your life is but a vapor. It appeareth and it vanisheth away. It's like a breath of wind. You've got eternal life. You've got something to rejoice in. In fact, even the word rejoice, you know how the Bible says rejoice? And again, I say rejoice. That's what he said. Rejoice. You know what the word rejoice means? Have you ever looked it up? It means brighten up means brighten up. He said, brighten up. And again, I say to you, brighten up. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, do not be foolish, Paul said, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He's just telling about be a person that has this joy. And this is part and parcel of prayer because of what it's going to produce. And just the summary real quick, I've got to move through that. The name of Jesus is what unlocks heaven. We literally have the right to use this name and you need to use this name, but not like a lucky rabbit's foot. You need to, when you pull it, you, you need to mean business like Wild Bill Hickok. 
You hear me? Don't just flippantly use the name all day long every day because it loses its power in your heart. You will begin to think it just it doesn't mean that much. Don't make jokes about the name. Point C, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I've got down here different things about authority. I said appendix, truths regarding authority in various levels. God is the ultimate authority. Then there's truth, which is voracious authority. Then there's conscience, which is called personalized authority. Now, I'm not going to take time. I'm only going to read one of these, but you can read these for yourself. Romans 13:1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And it speaks of different, the word power here is exousia, and it speaks of different levels of authority. But I want to just read this one definition of voracious. Now, the word voracious is like where Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, and the word means truly, truly. Voracious means truth. Now, listen to this simple thing. There is an authority that accompanies truth. I love this. There is an authority that accompanies truth. Certain things produce authority simply because they are true. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. From the standpoint of mathematics, we can use as an example the simple formula 2 plus 2 equals 4. This is not arbitrary. No matter how hard you try, you cannot make five out of it because that would not be true. Mm -hmm. Truth carries authority. The fact that it is true gives it authority. When someone tells a lie against you, this is why it really doesn't matter because when the truth comes out, authority, the authority of the truth will always reign over the lie. When the truth is known, everything is exonerated. Everything becomes clean and changed. Why? Because truth carries authority. Again, I'd like you to read that about 2,000 times because God's word is truth. So you can take that word. This is when I first, the very first time I think, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think the very first time I experienced the healing was when I got that. I saw that the Bible said in Matthew 8, 17 and 18, himself, Jesus healed all their sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah himself, took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And of course, the old one everybody else didn't learn, 1 Peter 2, 24, who his own self bore our sin on the tree that we being dead to sin might live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. That was truth. And I took that, and I remember just like this, I took a piece of paper and I wrote it out, by his stripes I was healed. And I mean, because I, you have to do whatever makes it real. And I remember looking at that and saying, that is truth. And I took it and I said, that's the truth. And I had this sickness and I went, I'm going to put the truth up against this fact. And he taught me all those years ago, and I, I probably teach this in every course I teach too, but he said, you're going to have to know the difference between facts and truth. Facts can change, but truth is eternal. He said, if you'll just keep applying the truth to the facts, he said, one or the other will have to change. And he said, the truth won't. <laughs> It'll never change. So he said, if you just keep applying the fact, the truth, the facts will have to change because the truth is the highest authority there is. Truth is the ultimate authority 
And it is the truth, Jesus said, that will make you free from the power of anything the devil has to bring against us. But, this is, but you got to know it. You see, it's, not, it's, it's the truth you know. <laughs> it's the truth you know. It's not just the truth you hope about. Then it goes on these different authorities, delegated authority, stipulated authority, authority and custom. Read those for yourself. Now let's get to lesson five, the pattern. What Jesus said about prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 13. What Jesus said about prayer. Lesson five on page 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, now listen, this is, this is still the key to 90%, over 90% of all biblical teaching on prayer. But when you pray, go into your room. Now this is from the NIV. But when you pray, go into your room. And the King James says, go into your closet. Close the door. Say that with me. Close the door. When you pray, close the door. And pray to your Father who is unseen. I don't, I'm trying to make myself quit stopping because I wanted to get, make, on it, but I know He's unseen. He knows He's unseen. Get used to the fact that He's unseen. Don't worry the fact about the fact that He's unseen. Moses, it says, endured as looking at him who was invisible. All those things that are seen were made by things that are unseen. That realm is where it's real. Don't worry about the fact that you don't see it. It's there. He's there. I'm sorry I'm being so childlike, but he's there. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you have need, what you need before, before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Now who said that? Who just said this then is how you should pray? Who? Jesus. Right? Yeah. Jesus said that, right? He just said, this then is how you should pray. And so here's this pattern that God gave Larry Lee all those years ago and Dr. Cho, and they all have tons of teaching on it. It's all good. They got hours and hours and semesters on this prayer. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Number one, our Father, which is in heaven, Hallowed be your name. In other words, to sanctify the name, to recognize that your Father's in heaven and that the name is to be kept holy. Hallowed means to be kept, to keep it holy, to revere it. Then he said this, your kingdom come. Now I want you to watch this because this is called prayer, but in prayer there's declaration. Now, like I said, I can't take time to teach on all this. We'll do this at another time. It doesn't say, I mean, just hear what he's saying. He said, this is how you're to pray. Kingdom of God, come. Your kingdom, come. Come. Kingdom of God, come into my life today. Come today. This is how you should pray. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's emphatic in the Greek. It's just like that. Your will, it says, thy will be done. Thy will, O God, be done. It's declarations. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. What is his will? His will is healing. His will is blessing. His will is prosperity. His will, his will is peace. It's not a matter of asking as much as it is declaring. So much of prayer is really messed up because people are petitioning more than they're declaring. And we're going to explain that further later. Thy will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, what if we really just stop there and spit the next four weeks on that? As it is in heaven. Well, how is it in heaven? As it is in heaven. Is there any sickness in heaven? Is there any sickness in heaven? We're to pray, thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. There's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no poverty. But look at the verse 11. Give us, who, who are we supposed to be talking to? Now this flies in the face of some people, but see, this is the difference between if God's word abides in you. See, you're not asking out of arrogance. You're not speaking out of arrogance. But did you hear what Je Jesus said this? He said, in prayer, you're supposed to, on a daily basis, say, give me. Now, I know when I teach on the parable, we talk about how the, the prodigal, you know, he, that's where he made his first say, give me what's mine. But there's a way to teach that. And there's an understanding. And it's different from what we're saying here. But you've got to, God is your father. It's his good pleasure to give his children good gifts. He's saying, Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Give us, give me, Father, what I need today. Now, don't you know that already that can offend any religious part of you, I mean, immediately, because it makes you feel like you're being arrogant before the Father? But I wonder how many of you every day just stop and say, Father, give me what I need today. <laughs> I mean, give it to me. Give it to me. Give me what I need. He said, where Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Give me what I need today, Lord. Give me what I need today. That's not a, that doesn't offend God. He's, he's, your, he's the Father. You've been accepted in the Beloved. You're, you're, you've been accepted. You've received the spirit of adoption. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those as we have forgiven our debtors. Sorry, because I'm not used to quoting that out of NIV. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In the Greek, it says, it says, and lead us not into temptation, but be delivering us from the evil one. It deals with our attitude in prayer. Prayer is not a mystical chant or an incantation. Point two, it says, do not pray to be seen of men. Private prayer is important. It's essential to the life of the individual. I mean, you know, because again, it says, enter into the, your room, enter into, it says, let me go back, go into your room. When you pray, go into your room. Again, the King James says, enter into your closet, and the word is bedchamber. And I speak about it a lot because it speaks again to this intimacy, this scene of an intimacy between a husband and wife that's going to produce life. It's a bedchamber experience. Prayer is supposed to be uh, uh, you and God, your husband. You're the bride of Christ, and you love each other. And you make babies. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
You cannot spend time alone with God and not come out pregnant. I say it all the time. I don't care if people get offended or not. It makes no difference to me at all. You'll be pregnant with faith, pregnant with hope and vision. Because I'm telling you, that's what his seed is. That's what his seed produces. There's nothing in him that's groveling, that's upset or angry. He just wants to love you. Do not be repetitious in prayer. Mark 7, 7. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. There is a vain worship. Vain means empty, idle, and fruitless out there when it's only the commandments of men as opposed to the commandments of God. Now I'm going to read Isaiah 29, 13, and 14 from the Amplified here. It says, And the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts and minds far from me. Now listen to this phrase. And their fear and their reverence for me are a commandment of men that is learned by repetition without any thought of the meaning. Therefore, behold, I will again do marvelous things with this people, marvelous and astonishing things. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the understanding of their discerning men shall vanish and be hidden. But that phrase is powerful, isn't it? It says that these people draw near me with their mouth. And this is what the church is full of. People that draw near God with their mouth and they honor them with their lips, but their heart, their heart, their heart, their heart, their heart. You've got to get your heart engaged. It's the effectual, it's the heartfelt. Remember, I keep saying over and over again, whatever it takes for you to get it out of, whatever it takes for you to get to the place that you're speaking from your heart. This is why every morning I am alone and I force myself to talk slower and slower every day of my life when I'm before the Father. I, I try to maximize each word that's coming out of my mouth because I don't want to just race through something. My Father, in which I am now, not only thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I mean, that doesn't produce zip. Think about it. Just the repetition of a prayer, do you think? There's no power contained with that. It's got, you've got to do whatever it takes for you to get your heart engaged because you can go. I don't know where the verse is in Jeremiah's first few chapters. It, in the Amplified, it's incredible. He talks to these priests and these people and he talks about, he said, do you think by coming to church, to my house, he said, and going through these, he said, in visiting my house, he says, there's intermittent stops between your acts of violence. <laughs> and he said, do you think by coming back and forth to church between your acts of sin and violence that these pretenses are going to cause me to think that you're, you've got your act together, you know, that, you, you, that you're just using my house as a place to kind of do this stuff and I don't realize what's going on? He said, these things that people, he said, are serving me from a place of mere repetition because they received things with no real thought of the meaning. See, this is why I keep talking about the revelation. You've got to meditate on these things until you own them. You have to own them. But the glory of God is that every single one of you can own them because he's no respecter of persons. I mean, that, remember, please hear that. He's no respecter of persons. And I, I'll say it until you get angry at me. If one person has ever been blessed in the world, through faith in God, you can be. If one person has ever had a miraculous healing through faith in God, you can be healed because God's no respecter of persons. If God has ever turned an impossible situation around, an impossible situation around for anybody, he can do it for you because he's no respecter of persons. 
Howbeit, when the Son of Man comes, will he find persistence in the faith on the earth? The unjust judge. I mean that Luke 18, another time. The basic elements of prayer that you learn from Matthew 6 are the principle of praise, putting God first, hallowed be thy name, thy King, our Father which art in heaven, the principle of daily prayer, the principle of forgiveness. Now look at this on the next page. Now this is, a, this, is this statement from Adam Clark's commentary, 18th century. Adam Clark said, quote, a proper idea of prayer is a pouring out of the soul unto God as a free will offering. And this next statement, prayer is the language of dependence. He who prays not is endeavoring to live independently of God. This was the first curse and continues to be the curse of mankind. Man will, if possible, live independently of God. Hence, he either prays not at all, listen to this, or he uses the language without the spirit of prayer. He used the language of prayer, but not the spirit. This goes right back to what we're saying about having your heart engaged. But again, I think you've heard me say it. Prayer is the language of dependence, and I never, ever will forget, like I said, when I read that the very first time in America, you know, we, again, July 4th, when we celebrate our release from British tyranny, remember? Independence Day in America. <laughs> but it's hit me, when I don't pray, I'm making a declaration of independence. To me, it was just so simple. By not having a prayer life, I'm making a declaration. Whether I am open my mouth and say it or not, I am declaring to God and to the world, I do not need God in my daily affairs. I can live independently from God. See, this is why prayer becomes so beautiful, because the moment you begin to, from your heart, bow your knee and get before the Lord, He sees at least that you're attempting. You're, and again, you've got to keep remembering, God's not legalistic. He's not up there with a chalkboard and a drawing board and a, you know, a clipboard and trying to keep track of how perfect you get it. He is your dad. He just wants you to come to him. And he wants you to begin to acknowledge him in all of what you do. Because to him, that's a sign of you saying, Dad, I need you. I want you to know how dependent I am. And see, this is so difficult for people that have great skills and talents. People that are multi-talented are so used to doing things in their own strength that they hardly ever ask God to come into. Oh, I can do that myself. Well, maybe you can, but how much more could you do if you invited God into the mix? But all I know is just hear that. Prayer is the language of dependence. He who prays not is seeking to live independently from God. That's the first curse of mankind to try to live. All these people outside this street right here, tons of them, tons of them, thousands of them have made a decision to live independently of God. But you and I on a daily basis can proclaim the fact that, Father, I'm dependent upon you. You've got to understand that's why he gets involved because as I keep saying over and over again, God is a gentleman. The Father, the Son, the, he, will, he's not, he doesn't force himself into your life. He has to be invited. You've got to let him know that you want him. Next statement, this is his commentary on the statement where Jesus said, don't be like the Pharisees who love to pray standing in public. 
The Jewish phylacteral prayers were long, and the canonical hours obliged them to repeat these prayers wherever they happened to be. And the Pharisees, who were full of vainglory, contrived, in other words, they planned on purpose to be overtaken in the streets by the canonical hour, that they might be seen by the people and applauded for the great conscientious piety. In other words, what this means is there were particular hours of the day when they were to pray. So rather than being at home, if they knew, oops, three o'clock's coming and three o'clock's the hour of prayer, uh, I need to go down to the market and get some eggs. And so they're on their way to the market, it's three o'clock, and so it's three o'clock, and so it's their duty, they have to stop and pray. Oh, Father, and he was saying, don't be like that, they have their reward already. In other words, this is not something that you do to prove your spirituality. Now you may say, well, I know that, but again, this is why, again, I, I love public times of prayer, but never will I ever, ever enjoy public prayer as much as I do private prayer. Private prayer, I don't have to worry about anything that you think. You know what I mean? I don't have to worry about what you're thinking. I don't have to worry about what you sound like. You don't have to worry about what I sound like. I'm just with him. But when you get a lot of people that have learned how to cultivate a private prayer life and they understand what I'm talking about right now, when those people get together and they've learned to not be moved by what other people pray, they, I'll give you, to, you have the right to pray like you do. I have the right to pray. And there's something about just, you've all cultivated the same thing. We want the presence of the Lord. I don't want to go anywhere without this presence. And you'll find people that are very mature being real quiet at first, and they just look around and you kind of just smile at each other. And you sit down, you'll take hands, and slowly people will begin to worship the Lord. They'll just begin to say, praise you, Father. And slowly but surely, one will start to pray. And it won't be a lot of looking around. You'll just, if you do look, you'll notice that like I said, eyes are just shut real tight because people are focused. That is when corporate prayer begins to be corporate prayer. That's when you go from an individual anointing and you can go to a corporate anointing where a lot of good stuff happens like the upper room. But we've got a ways to go. But listen to it. I, it says here, as they, Clark said, as they had no piety, but that which was outward, they endeavored to let it fully appear that they might make the most of it among the people. It would not have answered their end to kneel before God, for then they may have been unnoticed by the men. In other words, if they kneeled while they were on the way to the market, it would have been horrible because somebody wouldn't have noticed them. And consequently, they would have lost that reward which they had in view. In other words, the esteem and the applause of the multitude. Now, when you study these other commentaries, this is where they'll talk to you about in the same passage. They'll talk to you about a, a, a uh, uh, what's the word? Well, they talked to you about a spectacle that was called pole sitting. Pole sitting, sitting on a pole. Now, uh, this is hard to believe, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because of this issue, because of their want to be recognized by people, this is not a joke now. This is validated. It's even in Josephus, some of his stories. They began to carry with them like what we would call a little box. And so when it was time to pray, they would stop, stand on the box, so they would stand a little higher than everybody as they prayed. This is what everybody's, in other words, like right out here, so that everybody knows that you're praying. They want to make sure, so they set a box. Pretty soon they began to compete against each other, and this one was upset because this guy had a, an 18-inch tall box, so he'd make himself a 24-inch box. So his box was a little taller. 
this can kept going. They've got, I've got the book somewhere where I can, they got their pictures and stuff. These guys would start building things until, the, until they had a pole. And they would climb a pole, have two people hold it, and sit on the thing to pray so that people could see them pray. And they thought that gave them some show of being spiritual. I mean, that's a joke. Well, at least it's a joke to me. And uh, that's what he's talking about. He said, don't use vain repetitions. Don't pray to be seen by men. And you say, well, I don't do that. We don't do that. But see, this is something that's got to get deep in your heart. Even when you pray in public, you need to be praying alone. When you pray for the sick, you have to get to the place where you have to divorce yourself from whoever's sitting next to you. And you have to do that thing, like I said. You have to learn how to get connected. I'm going to get to heaven, but get connected. But if you haven't trained yourself enough to do this and get connected when you're by yourself, you won't be able to exercise that faith when you're in the middle of people. You have to learn how to be alone in the midst of a group. Clark's commentary, but he said, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. Prayer, this is what Clark says, prayer is the most secret intercourse of the soul with God and as it were the conversation of one heart with another. The world is too profane and treacherous to be the secret. We must shut the door against it. Endeavor to forget it with all the affairs which busy and amuse it. Now listen to this. Prayer, require, prayer requires retirement at least of the heart. For this may be fitly termed the closet in the house of God, whose house the body of every real Christian is. To this closet we ought to retire even in public prayer and in the midst of company. Now you see where I got what I just told you. Do you hear what he's saying? You're the tabernacle of God, the home of God. Your closet is the ability to go into your heart, even in the midst of a crowd. Great length of prayer. Then he says, this is Clark's commentary about vain repetitions. He said, this speaks to great length of prayer, which will, of course, involve much sameness and idle repetition, which naturally creates a fatigue and a carelessness in the worshiper, and seems to suppose some ignorance or inattention of the deity. In other words, like God's not paying attention, so I have to say this 27 times. A fault against which our Lord more particularly wishes to secure them. Prayer requires more of the heart than of the tongue. <laughs> Did you hear that? Prayer requires more of the heart than of the tongue. The, elo the eloquence of prayer consists in the fervency of your desire and the simplicity of your faith. Hallelujah. The prayer of importunity, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will... You give your son a serpent if he asks for a fish? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? God help me. I so desperately want you to somehow have an explosion of faith in your heart to where you actually believe that God wants to bless you more than you want to be blessed. Hallelujah. 
In other words, it is, God's not up there in doing this in any degree. He's not going, well, well. No, he's up there going, please, please. And there's a difference. You've got to see the right picture of him. I'll turn to the next page real quick. Emphasis, is in that, emphasis in that passage is upon the father-son relationship. Quote, in those days, if someone came to the outer gate and knocked, seeking entrance, the more wealthy would send their servant to call out and ask the name of the visitor. If it was someone who was known, they could enter immediately. If it was someone unknown, their servant would go to the master of the house and ask if he should let the visitor in. The thought here is that if you are known, you gain immediate entrance. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. If when we ask, we do not receive. If when we seek, we do not find. If when we knock, it is not open to us. We should ask ourselves if we are known by the master of the house. If we do know him, then the next step is faith. To believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, here's where we get to this, again, uh, prayer of importunity. Luke, 5, Luke chapter 11, verse 5. I'm just going to read the first few verses of it. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. Now think about this, if you would have a friend like this. Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine, it's not really for himself he's asking, is he? Because a friend of mine is on a journey and has come to me, I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, well, don't bother me. Don't bother me. The door's already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, now Jesus is speaking, listen. He said, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread, even because he's his friend, yet because, and the King James words uses the word importunity, yet because of his importunity, here it says in the NIV, because of the man's boldness, say boldness, because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it shall be given. And excuse me. So I say unto you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, and so on. Now look at the paragraph underneath. Again, the abundance of fine thoughts, the studied and vehement emotions, and the order of the politeness of the expressions, Clark said, are things which only compose a mere human harangue, not a humble and a Christian prayer. Our trust and confidence are to proceed from that which God is able to do in us, not from that which we can do for ourselves. Now, I want you to jump to the bottom of the page where that word is studied. The Greek word for importunity, anadiah, means shamelessness. Listen to that word, shamelessness. Jesus said, these people, this person will be heard because of his shamelessness. And he's coming at midnight. Do you guys have any friends that you could go to at midnight and because they're your friends, they'd open the door no matter what the situation is? Hopefully, all of you have at least one friend, right? That you could go to at two in the morning if you had to. And because they know you so well, it may drive them nuts, whatever, you know, that you're waking them up. But they will get up because of the friendship. And you only go to them at two in the morning. Why? Because you think of the one person you can go to, right? You think, who can I go to at three in the morning that knows me so well that they won't hate me because I go to them at three in the morning? I can go boldly with no shame because I know that they know me. They love me. This is what God's after. He wants this in your spirit where you have this, have this shamelessness, this importunity. 
Now turn to the next page, and we'll finish by reading this paragraph. It is the importunity or the boldness of faith, not the importunity of unbelief that gets results. Andrew Murray said, Andrew Murray had real insight into the subject of importunity in prayer. He said, it is not good taste to ask the Lord for the same thing over and over again. He said, if the thing which you prayed about hasn't materialized, don't ask again the same way you did in the beginning. That would be a confession that you didn't believe God the first time. Just remind him of your request. Remind him of what he promised. Remind him that you're expecting the answer. And let this importunity, this boldness, this shamelessness, be an importunity of faith because that's what will bring results. Shamelessness. God wants you to so know how much He knows you that you have no shame about going and saying, God, I've got need of this and I know it's crazy, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And some of you are in stages of your life where in a spiritual sense, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's not a good time to come. But God so loves you, He doesn't care what time it is because He loves you. And when you knock on His door because of this boldness and because of how you know Him, He will rise up and give you what you need because that's who we serve. Hallelujah. So please get this in our hearts. Father, we thank You for this. Show us who You are and show us who we are in Your eyes. Show us how much You love us. And show us how it's your good pleasure to give good gifts unto your children when they come to you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.